I'm Marty Moss Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. If you can't stop worrying about the health of the environment, who can blame you? What with all the dire news about floods and droughts, storms, heat waves, rising ocean levels, I could go on. The American Psychological Association has a name for that intense, overwhelming feeling, eco-anxiety, calling it a chronic fear of environmental cataclysm. But even if your fears are not debilitating and are not chronic, it's clear the Earth is experiencing unprecedented climate change because of human behavior with profound impacts on our way of life and well-being. Compounding that reality is our inability as the dominant species to agree on effective steps to truly mitigate the problem. So no wonder the APA found that two-thirds of Americans experienced some amount of eco-anxiety that was in a 2020 survey. Well, on the show today, understanding eco-anxiety, strategies for coping with it, and how to turn hopelessness into hope and action. We have two guests. Thomas Doherty is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Portland, Oregon. He's a pioneer in the field of climate psychology. He's co-host of the Climate Change and Happiness podcast. And Thomas Doherty, nice to have you with us today on The Connection. Hi, Marty. It's great to be here. Nice to have you with us. Also with us, Sarah Ray. She's an environmental studies professor at Cal Poly Humboldt, also the author of a book called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. Sarah Ray, nice to have you with us today on The Connection as well. Thanks for having me. Thomas, let me begin with you. And You know, you almost hate to begin a show with a definition, but nonetheless, I know the APA came up with this um, eco-anxiety uh, definition a couple of years ago. Help us understand what that is, what that feels like to be so anxious about the environment that it's, that it's debilitating. Yeah, Marty. Well, um, I'm also curious how Sarah will answer this, too, because I've been inspired by her work. Um, uh <laughs> Um, you know, I think for the listeners, when I personally, when I think about eco-anxiety, I always step back to see where this term came from. This is a term that came out of the popular culture in the early, in the kind of mid-2000s. And it was originally, uh, but the first mentions of it I've seen were focused around people's concerns about around chemicals in the environment, actually, and uh, endocrine disruptors and various things, toxins in the environment. And it speaks to our concerns about sort of mysterious, insidious threats to our health and well-being that might happen in the, in the, in the larger systems that we're embedded in, right? So it's, so the key, the key term is ecological, right? So it's, it's about the ecology of our lives. Uh, and then anxiety is a normal, healthy feeling. It's, it's sort of fear wrapped in a cloud. It's sort of a, a concern about a potential threat. So when we think about eco-anxiety, there's a lot of ways to approach the concept, but I always start with the idea that it's a normal and healthy response to taking care of ourselves in the world and looking at all kinds of threats, potentially. Now, in recent years, eco-anxiety has been applied to people's concerns about all the different dangers of climate change. And so... Um, like with any kind of anxiety, it's a normal and, and healthy response that helps us to take care of ourselves. But when it's um, too extreme, it's beyond our ability to cope, or we don't have a way to take care of ourselves or address the concerns, then it can start to lead to impacts, even mental health impacts in terms of anxiety-type disorders. Sure, and, so, yeah, I want, um, and I want to pick up on all that. And, and Sarah, Ray, let me give you a chance to weigh in on that, because mm-hmm. I know there has been some 
Not everyone has signed on to this idea of eco-anxiety, feeling as if it sort of puts the, the onus on the individual and not on the sort of the, the systems that we live in. And, and it's a, a kind of a pathologizing definition. Yeah, I think so much. And I love what Thomas had to say, too. And, and so I, I wouldn't say before before we go down what the potential you know detraction is from the term, I would say that overall, it's been a really great thing to turn attention to mental health consequences of climate change and environmental disaster. In other cultures and other times of history and, and other epistemologies and worldviews, you have languages and concepts and cultural agreement for what happens when things in the environment start to degrade underneath your feet or when your subsistence is threatened by some environmental cost or when humans have done something bad to nature. There's rituals and ceremonies. So there's uh, all kinds of infrastructure around keeping people in some sort of sustainable or harmonious or however you want to see it relationship with the natural world with the understanding that humans human health relies on the natural world and climate anxiety or eco-anxiety is the first time we've seen a term in English and sort of modern modernity that acknowledges that. So this is really good movement to have 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 that happening for the same reasons Thomas just mentioned that it draws our attention to the source of the crisis, which is the severance of humans from the natural world. And, and, and kind of naming think, and naming how it is that I think so many of us feel. Yes, putting a name on it, right? And I think to that point, one of the things that causes people to suffer even worse in their eco-anxiety is feeling alone and or some sort of shame or feeling somehow that the stigma of caring so much about polar bears or species decline or extinction of you know biodiversity or whatever, that those... Uh, deep feelings of grief or anticipatory grief are somehow make people crazy or something, right? And so I think that in in the evidence that I first explored that got me interested in this topic were through my college students and their eco-anxiety. And it was a really, really a sense of them coming to awareness of not being alone in that. So there's there's all kinds of really positive things of, about coming up with this term. Sure. How, and however, to your point about the pathologizing, the, the one potential negative, and, and actually there's a few, but the one big potential negative is that it enters into this sort of um, mental healthification sphere of all kinds of other types of disorders. We often don't think about mental or physical health within these larger social or political structures that shape our health, that very much materially affect whether we have resources in our bodies and minds to get up in the morning and face the day. And we often don't think about the political consequences of different types of economic and cultural structures that might shape our mental health or make us depressed or make us feel anxious. And so this sort of binary between what's happening in your private mind and heart versus what's happening out in the public and political sphere is really false. And I think a lot of people are doing a really good job, especially around climate anxiety, actually, to get people to realize that these emotions have political heft. They have political valence. There's some you know, political reason for it and political solutions. It's not just something that you need to um, go into therapy about, which is, of course, one very important support sure. leg. Well, and Thomas, let me go back to you. And I'm thinking of those people who have been the victims. And I think we can use that word of, let's say, uh, you know, a tornado tears through their community or, you know, a drought uh, changes their way of life. Do they experience eco-anxiety, sort of this sense of, of, of that the world is out of control and that they are kind of victims of, of things that they cannot in any way affect or change? 
Yeah, uh, one of the terms that I use is climate uh, climate hostage. So we feel like we're we're hostage to the system that we don't have a lot of or any control about, and that is that that paired with isolation really is is a really hard thing for people to cope with. It's funny when I first started doing this research over a decade ago, you know, I learned that, that there was different kinds of disasters, and we 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 kind of created three three kinds of impacts of mental health impacts of climate change. So there's the disaster impacts that we all can understand, sure. storms, floods, droughts, and those, of course, affect our physical health and our mental health and really can damage communities. Then there's another cluster of the, the long-term chronic effects of long-term droughts and climate refugees and economic problems and bankruptcies that kind of ripple through society. Uh, even if we're not at the epicenter of a disaster, we can still have those those kinds of impacts and then the third box is the emotional impacts it's the emotional weight it's the angst it's the grief when we watch this happening it 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 threatens our values our sense of what's right in the world and we also start to worry about how this is going to affect us personally um and so those three you know those three boxes are still really helpful to help people think about how this issue is affecting them and then what's happened in the last few years all around the world and in the U.S. and where I live is that these distant and future impacts have now started to happen in real time. So these impacts are coming together, like like I would call like a singularity of impacts with fires and storms. And that's what's really brought this to a boil in the public consciousness and which led people to actually seek therapy for this. And now we have this whole movement of climate aware therapy and people trying to trying to work on this. So it really is a change in just in the last few years. And then it does, as Sarah says, I mean, when I teach people about eco-anxiety, I say, well, you know, there's two sides of it, but there's that personal, emotional side in your body, in your mind, and then there's the there's the political side. Sure. And people will come at it from different directions. Some people really want to highlight this concept because it's important to them and they see this as a crisis. And other people um, play it down. Obviously, there's the denial and the delay tactics in society that belittle these kind of comments but even folks that are in the environmental movement as you say don't want to have their political identity pathologized so the term is useful in a way if it's useful for the person let me toss something out and i'm a baby boomer so i grew up in the 50s and 60s and i remember really vividly the the sense of dire threat from nuclear war i remember Mm -hmm. you know ducking and covering under my tiny little desk in second and third grade i mean that that was a reality now i wonder sarah um and i think humans have for better or for worse lived with existential anxieties about the future of the world is eco anxiety as we've been talking about is that any different Mm, that's such a great question. And when I first started studying this topic, that was the first set of questions I tried to work through. Is there something unique about this moment? Or is this just like every other existential threat? And we're dealing with a generation who just hasn't had theirs yet, you know. Um, and I'd say that the answer is yes and no. Uh, it's a little bit of both and in the response to that. In one case, and you can read this in different people's theories, and, and you, whether you buy it or not is a different matter. But 
I'm inclined to to believe it, and I agree with it, that there is something uniquely disastrous about ecological collapse at the planetary scale that affects absolutely everything and is unreversible. Um, and there's uh, there's an existential threat to that that's planetary, that's um, across all species, across all systems, and it's not isolated to any particular nation or any particular community. And that part of it, I think, uh, is uniquely big in scale and um, hard to get our imagination around. And that's part of the, the crisis actually has to do with the inability to imagine what exactly this is all going to involve for everybody. And that is a source of, deep source of the climate anxiety around it. Whereas something like, which isn't to diminish the fear of nuclear threat or to diminish a trauma like the Holocaust or to diminish other forms of generationally really identifying uh, traumas. But this has a sense of being um, at a different scale. And that is uh, Sarah Ray, who joins us along with Thomas Darty today on The Connection. And we are talking about the fact that uh, eco-anxiety, as we have been describing it, is real. A reaction to all the, the news about uh, dire environmental impacts of, of climate change. We're talking about what this eco-anxiety is and what we can do about it. We have much more to talk about after this very short break. And again, Sarah Ray wrote a book called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. Thomas Darty, clinical psychologist in private practice in Portland, Oregon. Actually, a field in the, a pioneer, I should say, in the field of climate psychology. He's got a podcast called Climate Change and Happiness. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Supporting WHYY Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? Today on The Connection, what to do when you're feeling hopeless about the future of the planet. I'm Marty Moss Cohen, talking with Thomas Doherty and Sarah Ray. Tom... Let me go back to you, and I'm also thinking of the fact that we're kind of winding up our, our three years of the pandemic. I believe in May it will officially be declared over. And I wonder if there are lessons from the pandemic that we can apply to our worry about uh, the environment and, and the future of the planet. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I thought, I mean, I think the pandemic was is many of the dynamics especially the political dynamics of climate change uh were played out during the pandemic you know to follow up on what what sarah was was saying earlier about how climate change is unique yes we've as a species as a as a, as a people we've always dealt with with threats um uh the global nature of this is really unique and the real-time nature of our information but what's what's also unique about climate change as opposed to other things is that uh, some of these issues even a similar issue like the ozone ozone hole or chlorofluorocarbons, chemicals that that would cause environmental atmospheric problems, those are often taken care of by our government and by experts. Mm-hmm. That we don't have to understand the science of all of that, and it's not our job to to solve these problems. Um, and so we have other examples. Um, and COVID is interesting because in some ways experts did help us and they did take care of things, even with the politicization and some of the pushback. There were smart people and they they put together solutions and we got out of the problem, at least most of the problem. But the unique challenge 
the coping challenge of climate change is that it, it has been, you know, partly through the fossil fuel propaganda, has been put onto the public as a personal public problem, uh, and um, and has been politicized. So we have this gridlock. So, you know, that that leads to a more part of the eco anxiety problems that people have is that they feel like they've been tasked with solving this global problem and it's so it's so far beyond their ability so um so we can see some parallels with sure. uh, with covid but also we can see the unique difficulty of of climate change and sarah i was also thinking um, part of climate change and even part of covid was you know what happens in bangladesh or what happens in you know in in china or africa or even here in philadelphia that can have a ripple effect around the world mm-hmm. that's also true it seems with climate change that we are yeah, connected think- in a way yeah. I mean, there's a couple of insights that came from pe- the pandemic that are really useful for the climate movement or the climate movement was pushing these things and then pandemic really cracked it open or catalyzed them in new ways. There is a sense of interconnection that environmental thinkers have been saying for a long time. Of course, indigenous communities have been saying it for even longer. And there's that inter- that sense of interbeing or that we rely on what happens across the, the world the fact that global trade markets and global production and, and disposal of waste and all of these things are systems that, that we have very little awareness of that are, in fact, very much going to turn around and maybe punish us or or that we have to have some stake in what happens when we get rid of stuff and, and the sources of the stuff that we consume. And these all things have been set into motion, of course, by globalization. But they really came to the fore when we came when we think about something like a contagion or a pandemic. We can start to see all of those routes of travel in a whole different way when we're worried about getting sick. <laughs> um, so yeah, this this brings up the interconnection. But one of the things that I think is really beautiful about what the pandemic sort of did that the climate movement has been trying to do is to raise these questions about how is it that the existing systems that are in place are actually the root cause of all the suffering that we're bringing upon ourselves, and of course the climate movement has been trying to say this around the fossil fuel industry for some time, but the pandemic really mainstreamed the possibility that people might want to let go of the status quo. They might want to not be so attached to the way that the, the way things just are business as usual sort of lost its luster for a lot of people during the pandemic. And that's something that the climate for, in order to address the climate, we're going to need to do at a, at a whole new level. And the pandemic opened the door for that. You know, Thomas, I was also thinking about um, probably 10, 20 years ago, there was a lot of denial about climate change and it, it had a kind of mainstream flavor to it. Um, and, and people calling it a hoax and, and saying that people were overreacting to certain weather events. But I wonder whether sort of doomsdayism has replaced denialism. So rather than saying it's a hoax, that it's hopeless and that we're kind of doomed as a species because we can't get our act together. Yeah, I was just talking about this with some of the therapists that I work with. And, um, you know, the way I, I deal with I deal with this idea of doomerism. I, I see it, it. It really is a stage of being because when you do really open yourself up to the scope and dangers of climate change, it is quite normal to feel overwhelmed and and to feel hopeless about it. Just like getting into any new big area, but if you stick with it and you work with it, we can get past that. So. My, my general emotional work with people is to is to work with them where they are and to validate whatever emotion they have and be curious about it. So rather than try to 
be black and white and push people's doomerism down or give them more superficial positive things. Well, just, just stay with that because it's, it's quite logical for, for a young person to feel, uh, 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 you know, overwhelmed. I heard a term just the other day, uh, nihilistic YOLO, nihilistic, oh, no. you, you live only <laughs> really? once. So, so get, get, just, just, just what well, the world's going to end. So just, you know, just enjoy it while you can. And that, that's, that, that I could see someone thinking that way, but you know, if you stay with this, so it's the developmental piece. We're all in a developmental cycle here. And as we stay with any problem, we realize, hey, well, I'm not dead yet. I still have some time on the planet. What am I going to do about this? And then, of course, as we do connect with other people and get over our, our, our isolation and take any form of action, we start to see there's different emotional responses. There's different things going on. I mean, my my work exposes me to all kinds of troubling information but it also exposes me to all kinds of fascinating inspiring people that are doing interesting things all around the world and so um i just say just stay with your doomerism and just see where it leads you is the way i would approach that with people versus it's a rite of passage versus the end of the line well picking up on that and sarah as you said you got interested in this because of your students i'm assuming most of them were, were young uh, do you think young people uniquely feel this kind of anxiety? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really great data that shows that that is in fact true in surveys across both the U.S. and um, especially the most recent uh, largest survey, which was the Lancet piece by uh, Caroline Hickman et al. Uh, in 2021, which surveyed 10,000 young people aged 16 to 25. So the data is pretty clear on this being much more intense among young people, Generation Z. Um, but, you know, that doesn't mean that other people don't feel it. But th- it makes perfect sense. The uh, Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change report that came out while they were sort of coming of age told them that they had 12 years to turn the tide on climate change. And so this is a generation that's been gro- coming of age under a clock that feels like they're going to be the ones inheriting the worst of the problems that are happening right now. So they have a, a vested interest, auto- you know, sort of automatically by virtue of being the younger youngest people and going to be having living with these this planetary consequences for the longest of time that said there's also just some things that are already happening with this generation there's a background noise of a mental health crisis with this generation that really is caused by other things too that need to be addressed so it's a it's a multiple what some people call the poly crisis there's a lot of different things happening that's generate this generation all of which are driving their mental health uh, issues and uh, that is Sarah Ray, our guest today on The Connection. She's an environmental studies professor at Cal Poly Humboldt, wrote a book called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. Thomas Darty is with us as well. He's a clinical psychologist in private practice in uh, Portland, Oregon. He uh, is one of the pioneers in this field of climate psychology. He's got a podcast called Climate Change and Happiness. And Thomas, you know, the first half of the show has been a lot of gloom and doom, so I do want to make sure we get to the mm-hmm. to the happiness part. Um, but picking up on what Sarah said, do you think that young people are are feeling this uniquely? Maybe even based on some of your clinical experience. Yes and no. I I think we do have to honor the honor the concerns of young people because they're so poignant. Um, but. Um, it's also important to realize that um, people across the generations are concerned about this. I'm looking at the research um, from the, the Yale Climate Program, and they, they 
often uh, survey the American public and the, the different uh, six Americas of climate change, whether people are alarmed or concerned or dismissive. Mm-hmm. And even just in their recent study, you know, 30 percent of, of, of Gen Z millennials are considered, uh, you know, are alarmed and 29 are 29 percent are concerned. That's a lot. Yep. But when you look at Gen X, 26 percent are alarmed and 27 percent are concerned. And even when you look at the baby boomer silent generation, greatest generation, we're, we're seeing 25 percent alarmed and 28 percent concerned. So while the young people are slightly more statistically uh, on board and concerned about this. We can't forget all the other age groups. So that's helpful for the listeners to realize across all ages, the, the actual breakdowns of beliefs are quite similar. So I've in fact had a lot of done a lot of work with parents and with professionals and with elders who have been really impacted um, by climate concerns and they all have their, their unique, this is going to go toward the health concept as well. As, as we're at different developmental stages in our life, we have different ways we want to cope with this to be healthy. You had mentioned earlier about, you know, talking to people who are are feeling this rather intensely. And how important is it, Thomas, to acknowledge their feeling, even if their feelings, even if it feels sort of way out of bounds, you know, to the to the to the reality of the problem? How, How do we acknowledge how people are feeling? Yeah, like one of my sayings is, you know, validate, elevate, create. So just starting out where where people are at and validate their feelings. People have so many different levels of knowledge around climate change. Some people have know about the science, others don't. They have different social social class, different threats. So really, just validating what they're feeling and then elevate that. Let's let's look at that as the most important thing. Most people are taught to think of their environmental. Uh, what I would call their environmental identity and their environmental values as secondary to other things. But let's put that on a pedestal and really look at that and let's get creative about that. Um, often people just are isolated and they have not had a chance to really just articulate some of their feelings. But as we know, therapeutically, even just basic ability to talk and, and, and share and be validated allows us to start to generate some of our own natural coping. Um, and then it often leads to, you know, a, a different kind of emotional intelligence about this. So we can start out with the, the difficult emotions, but feelings are wild. And so when I'm talking, I can also start to get excited. I can be curious. Mm-hmm. I can, and so part of my process is helping people feel patient, feel curious, just bring in some of these other emotions. I mean, one of my jokes is that if anxiety is the only guest at the party, it's not a great party, but if I bring <laughs> in curiosity and I bring in patience and I bring in courage or anger and other emotions, then suddenly I have this internal dialogue with myself that can be, can, can feel really different. And, and by dialogue yourself or with yourself, meaning people literally, those conversations that we all have in our head that we need to expand on them and use different words, different language. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, um, anxiety is helpful, is a helpful feeling, but it tends to narrow our awareness and kind of give us a tunnel vision to get us out of a threat. And that's useful in the middle of of an emergency. But we also need other feelings that will allow us to be more creative and look at the big picture. And so that emotional intelligence, wedding that idea of emotional intelligence and our climate coping is one strategy. Sarah, let me go back to you and something that you you wrote about a couple of years ago, that this whole phrase climate change has a kind of, I think the word you used was amorphous, has a kind of amorphous quality. Mm -hmm. But if we talk about drought or we talk about excessive heat, that that has more resonance with with people. Can you expand on that? 
Yeah, and if you don't mind, my my a little bit of wanting to tag onto what Thomas just talked about the anxiety aspect. One of the strategies that I have come to learn to use for myself, and when I uh, teach my students and work on with my kids too, and and anybody who wants to talk about this, is that those those so called uncomfortable or negative emotions that are in the room of my of my emotions or my or my heart at the party, as Thomas said, mm. are often secondary emotions that um, come from. Uh, the base emotion underneath all the layers of the onion uh, of love, of something that we love. And so oftentimes we spend a lot of our attention because of the negativity biases in our brains, a reptilian kind of residual reptilian bias, on looking for the threats, looking for the bad stuff. And unfortunately that leads us to thinking that if I can't fight the bad thing and get rid of the bad thing that I'm scared of, then I'm few, then I'm powerless. I've got nothing I can do. But we have a lot to do. We can still take that fear and that anxiety, figure out what is covering up that we love, that we fear is under threat by these terrible things, and do whatever the work is needed to nurture and grow that thing that we love. And when I use that strategy, one of the ways I do that is to say, yeah, there's all this doom and gloom and terrible stuff out there. It's not that those things are not true, but what else is true? And then that all of a sudden we can say, okay, well, I love these things. I'm afraid that they're going to be affected by climate change, what can I do right now to help protect or love or connect, build that connection with those things? And so there's a, a acting out of a love thing instead of acting out of a fear thing that I help, think is really helpful. This isn't about denying anxiety or fear, but like Thomas said, sitting with it and seeing where it can take us and, what, and it can take us to all these other emotions, as he beautifully put it. But to the point about amorphousness, yeah, I think some of the people who are talking about climate change, um, about it being something like Timothy Morton calls it a hyper object, and there are all kinds of ways of saying um, the person who runs the Yale Center for Climate Communication, Anthony Leiserowitz, often says that climate change is the worst villain, right? It doesn't tick any of the risk perception boxes that psychologists say you need to have something be perceived as a risk by our amygdala, by our brains. And so the fact that it ma- makes it so difficult for us to say, here is this awful threat. The pandemic was a little bit easier, you know, and somebody trying to get into your house unwantedly is is even more easy to understand as a threat. But climate change just does not take any of the boxes as kind of a villain. It's very hard to figure out what you're exactly fearing when you're fearing climate change. And that's what I mean by amorphous. And and also, I think part of the problem with it, too, is that it delineates between people who feel like the problems that are in their community that cause them a lot of distress. Maybe that's fire. Maybe that's, a you know, the sighting of some incinerator in their neighborhood. Maybe that's police brutality maybe it's something else, will often say climate change is just not really an issue for my community. We have these other more immediate concerns. Climate change doesn't feel like an immediate concern to a lot of frontline communities who are going to be, of course, the ones who are the most impacted by climate change. Of course, we, we know that from the statistics of this already happening across the globe. So the sense of putting something more granular on what exactly it is might help us get more action on on fixing and addressing it and connecting it more to these more immediate concerns that these communities feel would be really great. Does that make sense to you, Thomas? Oh, it does. Uh, and just to keep on that that amorphous uh, strand, we want to make our, um, our love, as Sarah says, and our values uh, less amorphous too because that's that's part of the issue here is that people have general nature values and they all know that, but they haven't really been taught to articulate what those are. So part of my work is really helping people to to develop what I call their environmental identity, their sense of their self in relation to nature and the natural world. Very much like we develop our gender identity or our sexual identity or our cultural identity, we have to develop language 
so we can stand for this and in our you know you know develop this in our life and so thinking about our life history where we grew up our family our experiences the part places in nature that we love um, our pets uh, our educational experiences these all kind of become part of our environmental identity and then of course we have values whether we're concerned about our own health or being altruistic or caring for nature and um, once we once you get someone really articulating their values and coming from a place of their values whether they're interested in science solutions with science or technology or with changing the economy or social justice or spirituality it creates this whole center of gravity about why we you know there's a saying in therapy we hurt where we care right mm -hmm. and so uh but we if we get less amorphous about our caring and more clear about that it's it's like a superpower because then we can come back to it and we're going to have good days and bad days obviously and the world is tough but if we can get in touch with our values and stay with them that that's that's what we can land and then we'll start again sure talking about uh, inventorying what we care about that's thomas doherty along with sarah ray and we're going to take a very short break we'll get back to our conversation here on the connection here on whyy in philadelphia Supporting WHYY, Penn Medicine, helping to find new cures for cancer. With life-saving clinical trials and advanced surgical techniques, Penn Medicine is offering more hope for patients everywhere. Learn more at PennMedicine.org slash cancer. Penn Medicine, what's next? Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. We're talking about the fact that uh, with all these storms and droughts and record-breaking temperatures lately, it's hard not to worry about the future of the planet. We've been talking about eco-anxiety and what to do about it. Sarah Ray is an environmental studies professor at Cal Poly Humboldt, and she's also the author of a book called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. Thomas Darty is a clinical psychologist in private practice in Portland, Oregon, co-host of a podcast called Climate Change and Happiness. Sarah, I wonder if I could go to you, and, and Thomas talked about the importance of, of connecting and communing with nature. You know, that's part of, of a good mental health diet, but I'm thinking of people in the city of Philadelphia where they're afraid to go outside, or they don't have a park where they can go and, and commune with nature, and that they're are so many people in the world that just don't have access to the kind of greenery and the outdoors that can help mitigate some of these concerns and fears. Yeah, this is one of the profound insights from a longstanding environmental justice movement, which has a lot of history in Philadelphia, of course, and all across the U.S. and even transnationally. And one of the big complaints or one of the big leverages of critique that they've brought attention to is the lack of access for different types of communities. And um, not just the fact that your zip code can determine your lifespan and that that is mostly related to race, actually is the number one identity factor that um, exposes people to toxins, but the environmental goods, not just the environmental baths, but the environmental goods like green space are also not available to these very same people. So it's sort of a double whammy of environmental injustice. Yes. And so along those lines, I mean, one of the things that's happening with 
the these insights about whether or not we need access to nature to have mental well-being there's some pretty good evidence that suggests that we do but what does that actually mean what do we mean by nature when we say that can be very very widely understood and i think that's really the key here thomas mentioned it earlier but it has something to do with realizing the interconnection between our bodies and the more than human world things like the air that we breathe the water that we drink often which is maybe laced or is not actually healthy or we you know it actually can be triggering of mental health trauma, not just uh, you know, a source of delight or gratitude or pleasure. And the interconnection that we have with people from across the planet or even across time, you know, we think about this notion of we are in fact actually stardust. These interconnections, where they are in um, resourcing and enduring and, and useful and, and provide us a sense of connection to the more than human world, they can be very, very enlivening and, and build up the mental health reservoir that we need to be able to engage in the kind of political work that is needed. Recognizing that even when it is under threat, when even when that is maybe, you know, corrupted in some way, can actually be the source uh, of of great activism, of great work uh, to fix those problems. And so once we start to tap into all the interconnections of the more than human world with us, it doesn't have to be green space. It can look like all kinds of things. Nature is absolutely everywhere. Every commodity that we purchase, we can identify its connection to nature. Every time we tap into that that network of our connection, we are emboldening that sense of how do I protect this? How do I honor that? How can I do things in my daily life that, that recognize that interconnection and my personal dependence on the health of all of these things? And so there's lots of ways to do it. We can broadly define what counts as nature, and we can also think about the ways that even the stuff that doesn't look like nature at all brings us closer to nature if we if we see it that way. Oh, that's that's a really fascinating way of, of looking at that. Thomas, let me put something else on the table here. And I wonder about our media diet. I mean, you know, I was looking at headlines over the last couple of days related to climate change. And when you put them all together, it's pretty depressing and pretty overwhelming. Do you suggest people go on a media diet? I do. I think one of the one of the first things that I do if I'm working with someone to assess their environmental grief or anxiety is um, look at their general life. Um, um, one of the images I use is this idea of an upside down pyramid. You know, if you have a pyramid and it's upside down, you have a little bottom apex of resources, and then we have all these issues impinging over us that just seem overwhelming. You know. And we're just, we feel inadequate and imbalanced. And so but we can flip the pyramid over and put it on its base and just focus on our foundation for a little bit. That's our daily, what I call our personal sustainability. So our rest, our exercise, our family, our job, you know, and take care of our health. Um, that can give us a little stability and then energy to, to take on issues because I do want people to be engaged and take right. on the issues of their life. And so one dynamic of our our daily foundation is just checking in on our use of technology in general and our and our access to the news because some people do have have a kind of an addictive behavior to news where the first thing they do in the morning is look on their phone or get on the internet and things like that and so that is a dose of stress right into your nervous system um first thing in the day uh, and so breaking that tie um and doing a brief news fast even for an hour even for a half of a day and then building up can really be helpful because as I say, you know, the news, the news is our life. Our life is the news. So what I see in my home, what I see in my, out of, outside of my front door, the weather, the animals, the people, that is important. That's where my life lives. I want to be informed about the rest of the world as well. But right now the, it's, it's unbalanced. 
people actually spend a lot more of their time thinking about things far away from their daily life that they have no control over. And that is a basic psychological, you know, process. If I'm focused on a lot of things I can't control, it, it doesn't make me feel good. So yes, uh, controlling your news. I have a no news before noon rule. I try not to look at the news in the morning and I focus on my life. Um, there are different ways to approach this. Sure. But but if you're feeling just, you know, you look at the news and you get upset, then that's probably a sign that you should dial back a bit on your consumption. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the unique things about our modern world versus other other times, even just the fact that you know, we have digital news versus analog news. It's it's a it's a different experience for our nervous system to read the newspaper right. versus to be online on a screen. Uh, and so, yes, we 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 just want to be aware of that. And then, of course, a larger conversation about what the source of our news is, because most of the news we see is quite sensationalized and um, is a product that's designed to draw our attention. So we also want to, much like any other diet, we want to think about the actual quality of where we're getting our information. There is, you know, solution-focused journalism around climate change that, that, that specifically looks at issues and, and solutions and ways that people are working positively. When you start tapping into that kind of news, you can actually come away feeling inspired by the news. Well, picking up on that, uh, and Sarah, going back to you, I mean, there is there is some progress right, on, on the environmental front, whether it's, you know, the... the um, green cars and solar energy and renewables and things like that. I mean, that it isn't all gloom and doom, even though it sounds like that's what we've been talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think what Thomas just said about how news is designed to grab our attention and therefore it also is designed to tap into our amygdala hijack, right? right? They want us to not actually have reason. They want us to feel fear and that will keep us doom scrolling, as they call it. And that is great for the attention economy, the $5 billion a year attention economy, but it's not good for us and it's definitely not good for the planet. So yeah, I have a strong, I have strong opinions about that particular kinds of news and that particular kind of um, sort of the algorithms that go into how we consume that type of news. But, you know, there is so much happening out in the world and there are solutions everywhere. Thomas mentioned solutions journalism. There's a huge movement of journalism and journalists that are trying to push against the negativity bias in the news. If you look at the last 20 years, the rise of emotions that are conjured in um, different types of news media, the rise of things like anger, fear, um, sadness has gone spiking up in the last 20 years. And, and the, the uh, emotions of things like joy and even neutral emotions have gone down a lot. So there's a, some pretty pretty wild stuff happening in the news and and that the positive stuff that happens the solutions that are happening the communities that are banding together even the policies that are that are being put forward aren't getting the news in part because they're not um they don't have that kind of sensational negative if it bleeds it leads kind of attraction to them and also and i think this is some of the work that is beautiful from rebecca solnitz uh she's a beautiful author and writer if people aren't familiar with her i recommend they check out her work but she describes why it is that so much of what's good happening on the planet does just doesn't make the news and uh, a lot of it's just very unglamorous and um, you know the, it's a, the work of many 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 people building together what B Paul Hawken calls the blessed unrest of a movement a groundswell of movement that's trying to shift the way the weather's you know the way the wind is blowing and politically and it doesn't make very good news is part of the problem. I, I like that phrase going back to you Thomas though and picking up on what Sarah was just saying there so in terms of emotions, what gets us to act? Is it 
anger? Is it anxiety? Is it joy? Is it happiness? Um, if people are feeling, I don't know what to do, well, what is the motivator? I think all of those all of those feelings can get us to act. That's the neat thing about it. It really depends on it really depends on uh, the circumstance. And again, uh, anger feelings like anger can be quite helpful because they are energizing kind of emotions, particularly if they're balanced again by curiosity and compassion. If it's only just anger, that can be really debilitating, and then it leads to us and them kind of politics and things like that. So it's really, you know. Um, uh, multiple emotions, and then to the action piece, there is that. That is a common kind of saying now that chan- you know, channel your eco grief or your eco anxiety into action, and that's that's um, true to a certain extent. But we want to be a little sophisticated about that because part of the part of the cause of eco anxiety, eco grief, is that people are constantly getting hammered with messages about taking action and changing things, so they're fatigued and they're inadequate. So it's really about finding action that's meaningful for you within your own set of abilities, right? And then experimenting and doing pilots and seeing how this works. Um, there's sort of three um, aspects of life meaning, and we want our action to contribute to our to our life meaning, right? So we want to have a sense of purpose. That's that that leads meaning to our life. We want to have a life that makes sense. So maybe I'm using my skills or abilities or what I what I studied in school and I'm applying that. That might make sense and be uh, comprehensible to me. And then I also want it to be significant, like to have a payoff. So when we can line up those things, finding a little bit of purpose, it makes sense, and then it feels significant, that's where the action really has great mental health benefits. And, and that's ultimately all we can do in our life is to search for those times of purpose, you know, purpose and significance. So yes, um, different kinds of uh, emotions. When I'm excited and with people that I care about and we're working toward common cause, that positive, that positive energy can really lead to all kinds of great action. But sometimes action comes from anger, comes from emergency as well. Well, indeed. And I wonder, Sarah, I've heard, I've said it myself, you know, what can one person do in the face of what feels as if a a system that is still, you know, moving ahead and and we're still dealing with the impacts of fossil fuels, we haven't gotten off of fossil fuels, and it can feel like, okay, so I'm going to recycle and I'm going to turn my thermostat down. Is that going to be enough? Yeah, this is the sort of perennial question, and I think this is the one that 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 buggers everybody's efforts. And I love the psychology the psychology term pseudo inefficacy to oh, describe this particular right. dilemma. Right. And this this is the basically the concept that if we think that a problem is too big, that even saw the, the negative feeling of even trying to solve one small part of it is outweighed by. Um, or the positive feeling of solving one part of it is outweighed by the negative feeling of not being able to solve the whole. That's kind of the definition of pseudo-inefficacy. It sort of captures the climate dilemma to a T, I think. Uh, The climate problem seems so big, and anything we could possibly individually do just doesn't even seem to, you know, touch the sides. And I think that, unfortunately, pseudo-inefficacy is why we have something like 70% of Americans who are greatly concerned about climate change are not actually doing anything in their lives differently um, to deal with climate change. There's some big 40% swath in there that that, that would cover. Um, and so this part of the 
part of the sort of key that I think we haven't really been talking about, just sort of talking about the edges, Thomas just mentioned something about what psychologists also call collective effervescence. When we get together with other people to work on something, that is in fact the sort of chemical chemical and psychological stuff that our brains need for us to keep coming back to the work and doing more. We often think that what we need is to see positive effect or we need to see the sort of um, payoff of the work that we're doing solving the problem. We want to see metrics and deliverables and evidence that it matters. Um, but in fact, psychologically, what makes, will make us continue to do the action is not that. It's the fact that we are doing something in a collective when you see this evidence around people getting involved in action, helping to alleviate their climate anxiety, if you actually disaggregate and control for whether it's the fact that they joined a community or the fact that they saw themselves solving the problem, it's in fact the joining the community is the thing that helped them solve their climate anxiety. It's not the knowing that their work is going to fix the problem. So the sort of instrumentalism behind the need for seeing that I'm making a difference is, is not actually what we psychologically need in order to, to engage in this work, which I think is a really important insight that we are that getting together in a community is the solution. It's not the solution is not fixing climate change. The solution is getting together in a community. And if we look at all these different you know cultures and different people who are not from kind of a Western Enlightenment capitalist culture of individualism, this notion of not being an individual in this whole effort is really natural to other people. It's a very new modern thing to think that we alone are the only ones doing anything. And so if it doesn't make a difference, I give up entirely. It's a real um, sign of our individualism to to give up uh, and not see ourselves and as part of this larger collective. Greta Thunberg calls this cathedral thinking. Olufemi Taiwo calls this the ancestor principle. There's lots of beautiful different scholars who are saying, hey, we're never alone, even if you've been raised in a colonial kind of mindset of thinking that you're all by yourself. You really aren't, and it's just a matter of waking up to it. Thomas, I'm going to give you 30 seconds response. Then we have to say goodbye. Go ahead. Oh, I think this has been a great conversation. I'm personally getting a lot out of it, and it, it, it speaks to what we're exactly talking about to hear Sarah bring in her perspectives. It, it, it inspires me. Um, so I think it's, it's these kind of, if we can create safe, open environments for people to talk and share and recognize diversity, that we're going to come at this from different perspectives and we can learn from each other. That's, that, again, is that collective effervescence, and we, we, should, we should all try to strive for that in our lives. I love that collective effervescence. My thanks to you, Thomas Doherty and uh, Sarah Ray, for joining us today on The Connection. You're very welcome. Take care. Our pleasure. Yeah, thanks so much. Sarah Ray wrote a book called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. Thomas Darty is the co-host of a podcast called Climate Change and Happiness. Thanks for joining us today on The Connection. You can email us at theconnection at whyy.org. You can uh, sign up for our newsletter. You can download a podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, and you can find us on Twitter. Our engineer today is Diana Martinez. Debbie Builder is a senior producer, and Paige Murray-Bessler is the producer of The Connection. I'm Marty Moscoyne. Have a great weekend, and join us next week for another edition of The Connection right here on WHYY.